Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 961. In this week's episode, David Lorelo welcomes Brian Garman, pitching coach for the Dayton Dragons, high A affiliate of the Cincinnati Reds. We hear about how Brian's own trip to driveline as a player led to a career in coaching and pitching development, all thanks to a recommendation from teammate Caleb Thielbar. We also hear about working with players like Bryce Bonin, Stevie Branch, Carson Spires, Vincent Timpanelli, Braxton Roxby, and more. David and Brian also discuss things like how the challenge of increasing velocity is different for each player, the relationship between command and velocity, and how stuff continues to be king. And if I'm remembering correctly, you told me that at the end of the day, the Reds want big time stuff. Is that pretty accurate still? Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, I certainly haven't heard anybody say, hey, we want to back off on the stuff, you know, like just because Kyle's not the guy leading that charge, you know, Derek Johnson is our director of pitching now. And if you talk to DJ, he would certainly tell you that, you know, stuff, big time stuff is still, that's the goal. That's what we're after. And if you, if you listen to DJ, if you listen to Eric Jaggers, Brian Conger, any of, any of the guys who are leading the charge for the pitching department, you know, we, we all still want big time stuff. There's no doubt about that. But before we get to this conversation, I must issue you my weekly reminder to visit the fangraphs.com shop. It is not only the best way for you to find Fangraphs merch, but also our ad-free memberships, which you can get for yourself or as a gift. It is truly the best way to not only browse the website, but to help us keep doing everything we are doing, providing you baseball statistics and research and chats and podcasts and all of it, free of charge. We truly couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest is Brian Garman, pitching coach for the Dayton Dragons, the high A affiliate of the Cincinnati Reds. Brian, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. We are obviously going to talk pitching. We're going to talk about a few of the interesting prospects in the org. But before we do, uh, you grew up in Ohio. You were actually in Ohio expecting a whole bunch of snow today. We are talking on Wednesday. Uh, you also went to the University of Cincinnati. Are you a Bengals fan? Yeah, as much as I can claim to be one. I, I grew <laughs> up a Bengals fan. You know, I grew up playing football and whatnot. But once I got to college, I really kind of stopped paying attention to other sports. And I just like baseball was just something that I really locked in on. But I've always kind of wanted the Bengals to be good. But I, I can't say I've ever put a lot of time and effort into, you know, watching their games and, and supporting them. But I have to admit that I have uh, I've watched as much as I can so far this year. It's been fun to watch Joe Burrow go be a guy. <laughs> so you'll be watching the Super Bowl, but maybe not in full-blown uh, Bengals gear like <laughs> a lot of people. <laughs> correct. Correct. Let's talk baseball. You mentioned once you got into college uh, at UC, you started becoming just a baseball guy. You ended up pitching in the Milwaukee Brewers system, you know, before going on to coaching. I looked up and saw that one of your rookie ball teammates, and this was, I believe, in 2010, was Caleb Thielbar. Uh, when I talked to Caleb, uh, I think it was just two summers ago, he mentioned that you went to driveline toward the end of your playing career, but by that point, and I believe these were his exact words, your shoulder was too far gone by that point. Yeah, that's probably a that's probably a good way to put it. It just, you know, it took a long time. I had a, I had extensive, you know, damage and reconstruction in there and I I made this comment to my wife. I I've made it in the past where like it 
probably took me five years post-op to get to the point where I would be able to consider my left shoulder like back where it should be or like comparable to my right shoulder. And when I went to driveline, it was, I was just over two years post-op. And so I just wasn't going to give it enough time and time wasn't on my side as a 25 year old free agent. But, you know, I still, I still throw and do different things and I kind of experiment. I, I mess around with some of the pitch design technology and uh, some of the cues and different things on my own just to see, you know, how effective I could be as a coach. And so it, it's interesting to me that like my shoulder feels better now at, you know, 33 than it did when I was 28 or 27, I guess. But it's rough to think about. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hard thing to just sit and spend time with. But I'm at least I'm at least happy that I got to experience going to driveline and I got to learn a lot about it. And then I got to I get to kind of spread the word, you know, and I think I think Caleb would tell you that I'm the reason that he went out there. And yeah, Caleb and I were teammates in 2010 and we are, we are great friends to this day. You know, he was in my wedding and he's one of my closest pro ball friends, you know, former teammates. So he told, I mean, that guy's story, good Lord, it's been fun to watch him. You know, I'm sure it's not been fun for him to endure all of it, but to watch his career turn into what it has, it's been, that's been awesome. No, and Caleb did tell me that you are the reason that he went to driveline. And I think, Brian, that driveline is a big reason that you're coaching in pro ball, uh, specifically with the Reds. Yeah. You know, I, I you know, I have a, a friendship with Kyle and, you know, things things didn't go the way, you know, you kind of drew them up, you know, the way we wanted them to go, but just, you know, getting here and, and building the relationships with the people that I've been able to cross paths with and Kyle and Jags and just, you know, trying to make, trying to take what driveline has done in the private sector and then bring it to the affiliate. It's, it's awesome. It's a really cool idea. It's unfortunate that, you know, that group is kind of, that Kyle is now gone, but you know, he is a huge reason for the success that we had last year and we'll have again this year. And, um, you know, he, we definitely put some things in motion and built a system around, you know, a data driven approach and saw real development in, in a pretty short period of time, which I think is hard to deny. And we met Brian last summer at a game, I believe it was at West Michigan. You had been work. Lion Richardson had been throwing in front of a rap soda with you working him. <laughs> no, no big surprise there. But we then sat down in the stands, you know, pregame. And if I'm remembering correctly, you told me that at the end of the day, the Reds want big time stuff. Is that pretty accurate still? Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, I certainly haven't heard anybody say, hey, we want to back off on the stuff, you know, like just because Kyle's not the guy leading that charge, you know, Derek Johnson is our director of pitching now. And if you talk to DJ, he would certainly tell you that, you know, stuff, big time stuff is still, that's the goal. That's what we're after. And if you, if you listen to DJ, if you listen to Eric Jaggers, Brian Conger, any of, any of the guys who are leading the charge for the pitching department, you know, we, we all still want big time stuff. There's no doubt about that. And a guy whose stuff is increasing a lot uh, since he joined the org. And I don't recall if, if it was you or Kyle who told me this, but Carson Spires, you know, has really increased his, his velocity. Yeah. Well, Spires has, has improved, I think, at a lot of things. You know, I think he's like across the board, maybe seen, 
I don't want to say the most, like the like the largest jumps or increases, but he has been a guy for me who has seen his stuff improve, his approach improve, his performance improve. Like he across the board, I think is just like maybe I don't want to call him a, a beneficiary of it, but you know he is a guy who has just everything's kind of falling into place for him. And the 2021 season is it if you look at what he did, it's hard to deny. You know, he kind of he came in as a as eh, he a starter, is he a reliever? You know, he was a reliever at school and he didn't throw that hard and you know, he's throwing a little bit harder. He's got he's got some okay feel for his off-speed stuff. And then it just like he just picked up some momentum. And I think Forrest Herman did a great job with him in Daytona. And, you know, the momentum that Carson picked up in Daytona and then brought with him to Dayton. I mean, that guy at, at one point in the season, I said, if if the big leagues needed a guy to just go fill three innings right now, this is the guy I'm picking. He's it was it was unbelievable to watch him pitch. You know, he's still the one knock on him would be that he just every so often gives up a couple too many barrels. But it's going to happen. You know, that's just the kind of the way it is. And for a guy who throws as many strikes as he does, you're just every once in, every once in a while, you're going to get tagged. But for the most part, he kept, he just kept us in games. He's competitive as hell. The guy's prepared as anybody uh, I've, I've ever worked with at any level. You know, his, his routine, his scouting report, his game day, you know, just everything about Carson is it's professional. He's a pro's pro. You know, that's kind of what we that's the that's the saying that, that kind of gets thrown around. And he is just uh he's mature and he's prepared and he cares. He's competitive and uh you know he's every every move he makes is geared toward putting himself in a better situation for for his the next time on the mound. And that's all it is, you know. And every every so often you gotta talk to him about like Hey, take a break. Like, it's okay to just take a day, like mentally, just kind of check out, you know, don't let this eat you up. And he's the kind of guy who he just, he lives and breathes it, wants to win. The guy's, the guy's a winner. There's just no way around it. Like the guy just wins and it's not a secret as to how or why. And he's just a, he's a clubhouse guy. He's a leader. I mean, the guy just does it all. We kind of, Kyle and I kind of joked about it. We just called him Captain America. Like there's just nothing he doesn't do now. And I'm excited to see what 2022 looks like for him. Yeah. Jumping to uh, another pitcher, Baseball America rates Bryce Bonin, second rounder in 2020, I think out of Texas Tech, as having the best fastball in your system. Yeah, it's electric if you've if you've seen it. You know, the guy just, it's not a secret as to what he's trying to do either. Like if you watch him on the mound, it's uh, it's aggressive. It's a high effort a scout that I'm I'm friends with years ago was describing an, a, another kid, obviously, but he said that's a that's an efforty delivery, you know. And and this was it was a college kid I was trying to get this scout on. I said, "What do you mean efforty? Like he's trying to throw the ball hard?" He said, "Yeah, it's 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 too efforty for for me in our organization." I kind of laughed. I'm like, now we have to throw 100 miles an hour and make it look effortless. Like that's that's the that's the thing now, I guess. But um, Bonin will. Bonham will stand out there and let it rip, and it's not a it's not a secret as to what he's doing, what he's trying to do, and uh, the fastball is electric. We want to see him, you know, uh, lock it in a little bit in terms of being able to command that, and or you know at least control that and command a secondary pitch off of it, uh, just to give him another 
um, dimension, you know, so that we're not staying up there just throwing everything a hundred and not a hundred percent sure where it's going to go. But, you know, in talking to Bryce, he, I think he's got a plan for it. The guy, um, the guy, again, he's a lot like Carson. He just, he's a competitor and, uh, he wants to, I mean, he wants to win. And that, that fire coming out of those two guys, it's, it's pretty impressive. Now they express it differently, but it's there. And Bonin is a fun guy to watch. With effort in mind, what is the relationship between velocity and command? Is a pitcher going to see his command lessen with higher velo, or is that is it a mistake to assume that? No, I don't. I don't necessarily agree with uh, lower velocity being easier to command. I think. I mean, it's obviously it, it completely depends on the individual, but I think a lot of what the industry has done is we take these guys, we train them to go be maniacs and we want them to get strong and we want them to move fast and be explosive. And then all of a sudden we put them on the mound and a guy all of a sudden maybe doesn't just start, you know, he doesn't dot up every pitch and every, all of a sudden people start to panic. And it's like, Hey, maybe we should just take our foot off the gas a little bit. And, um, you know, we just, just, just two or three miles an hour off and, you know, maybe just, just feel it, just feel it, just command it that way. And, uh, Generally, what I have seen is that that really backfires. That never goes as planned. I usually err on the side of speed the guy up, make him go faster, try to get him to throw the ball harder, get a radar gun out and make him throw the ball harder, ask him to throw the ball harder, go faster, all that stuff, all the stuff we talk about as far as like just being a high-end athlete. And then we'll like, let's start to track the command and then we can... You know, we can actually see if it gets better or worse or whatever. But I think once you start to back a guy off, A, it becomes too mental. But B, like they're searching, they're trying to feel for something rather than just going and being instinctual, being the athlete that they are. And so I think when you I think when you try to back a guy off, command actually gets worse. And you're better off just letting the body like work at the rate that it wants to work. And if we can just get the athlete to trust it and kind of try to turn the brain off you know, so to speak, and just like let the body go do what it what it's gonna do. Now at least we have the groundwork. You know, we have we have somewhere to start with a jumping off point. But yeah, I think once you start to when you start to slow a guy down to try to get him to command the baseball, very rarely does anything good come from that. Because at the other the other point of it is like, okay, great. Like now you're commanding ninety two, but that's slow. So you can throw ninety two slowly all you want, but you're gonna have to do it in like rookie ball because that's not going to play in the big leagues. And so we need to get guys to throw the ball hard and throw it where they need to throw it. And, you know, ideally that's upper nineties. You do need to let the body do what it's going to do, but you also need to optimize your mechanics. I believe that in order for a pitcher to optimize his velocity, he actually needs to optimize his mechanics, which I would think would actually improve command as you're suggesting. Yeah, it's, you know, the other part of that is like when we talk about mechanics and optimizing them and we talk, we can go down this rabbit hole of like biomech analysis and we can get into like the force plates and do all the stuff. And if we fine tune all this stuff, but what we don't, what we aren't able to really find out about individuals is like, I guess we could find it out, but it would take so much time that the career would be gone. But, you know, we're talking about fiber recruitments, coordination, previous experiences, <laughs> like anatomical anomalies or limitations, 
there are so many things that factor in. It's like, you know, and it's like you hear coaches talk about all the time, like repeat your delivery. You know, we've got to get a repeatable delivery. And if you go fast, you're kind of out of control a little bit, then you're not going to be able to repeat it. Well, nobody repeats it anyway. Like that's the repeatable delivery is a unicorn. So what are we actually chasing? We're looking for a delivery that is within the ranges of what we have trained the athlete or what the athlete has trained himself to be able to handle and make adjustments for. Adaptability is the num it's the it, that's the key. It's because no two deliveries are the same from the same guy, no two deliveries are the same. So if you're trying to just chase a robotic, repeatable delivery, you're just gonna get a guy who throws slow and or maybe throws hard but gets hurt or something, you know, silly. Like that's just not gonna it's not a long term plan. So what we need to do is build this like wide, the strong bandwidth for adjustability and just get athletes to move through different positions at different times and sequences. And if we can do that, now we have a robust athlete who can make adjustments on the fly. And now we have a guy who's been trained to go fast and explosive and has has this like wide range of skill sets and and the simple skill of just adjusting to a discrepancy in timing or or positioning from one delivery to the next which gives us like that's that that's your guy like that's what DeGrom's able to do that's what Scherzer's been able to do like that's what your big time horses are that's what the you know they don't they don't repeat the same movement at the same time at the same speed every time they just are really, really good at making adjustments and they don't do this consciously, right? But like they've just made enough reps and they practice with enough, like their practice is deliberate enough that they have built this library, this catalog of movement solutions for these for these specific problems. And that's how you create a long-term plan for an athlete. Like that's that's the guy who lasts a long time. And as far as velocity training goes, Brian, is safely increasing velo with a pitcher a one-size-fits-all procedure, or does it vary at all pitcher to pitcher? Well, I think it, I, I, it 100% varies from, from guy to guy. You know, we could talk about whether or not a guy needs to do more underload or more overload based on his velocities, you know, off the mound or in running guns or pull downs or whatever. So I think that just the programming of it is is highly individualistic, but the other part of it is what is safely, you know? We hear that a lot too, and it's it you have to sit back and wonder, you know. Every time you try to throw a ball hard, you run the risk of hurting yourself. And it's an explosive movement. It's the fastest movement in in sports in terms of like, you know, moving a body part. It's pretty fickle. <laughs> Let's say that, right? Like the shoulder and the elbow Eh, something doesn't go right. You know, we're, we're asking for trouble. And so when we start talking about safe and effective and, and, you know, measured and all this other stuff, can you do it? Sure. And I think you could, you know, like we use the pulse sensor from driveline, formerly known as Modus. And, you know, we, we put that on our guys and, and we manage workload with it and it does all kinds of things. You know, it's a, it's a great tool and we believe in it wholeheartedly. But even though we use that, we're monitoring everything and we're trying to do, we're trying to take the most um, responsible approach possible with our guys. Like you're still going to have things come up. You're still going to have guys who, who get hurt and we don't, we don't love that. And, and, you know, I, I used to hear people talk about, well, that's the cost of doing business. Well, 
I understand that. I don't think we should just accept that blindly and just be like, oh, well, you know, it's just, that's part of our experiment. I don't like that because that's a guy's career. That's a guy's livelihood. It's something that, you know, that's a, that's a human being who's been doing this since he was five years old. And it means more than that's the cost of doing business for this, you know, billion dollar organization. Like I don't, I don't love the idea of taking that approach. So we do understand inherently there are there is risk there, you know, there are some dangers here in terms of like longevity and career, but at the same time, you know, we have to, it's, it's a balancing, it's a constant balancing act of, can we do this responsibly? And can we, can we still be responsible and still get this guy like what he needs? You know, if a guy throws, if a guy throws 89 and it's flat or maybe it's not flat, it's just, you know, it's like this, it's the bad, like dead zone fastball, and we need to have a conversation with that guy and say, listen, you're probably never going to throw 98, but in order to stick around, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to see some fours and fives in there. So like, we're going to have to be a little bit more aggressive with what you're doing and we're going to have to do everything we can to get you at least, at least to major league average, because they're just, there just are not a lot of guys who make it with 89 and dead zone fastball. You better be able to spin the shit out of it in any other direction if you're going to do that. And at that point, like there's a pretty high likelihood that that guy can't do that. And we have a few more minutes here, Brian. On the subject of velocity, uh, an under-the-radar guy that you had this year in Dayton, and I know that I talked to uh, Kyle about him, was uh, Stevie Branch, who you know throws very hard. He was a non-drafted free agent out of, I believe, the Rochester Institute of Technology. So I think it's safe to say the Reds are pretty good at finding diamonds in the rough because he, I think he was really on nobody's radar. Yeah. And I think it's easy. Like if you talk to Stevie and I asked him about this because I, you know, I wasn't involved with bringing him here at all. You know, I didn't know anything about Stevie Branch. And so when he came to Dayton this summer, you know, I think I had him for maybe the last half, probably close to that. But I said, like, you throw gas you know this kid's 97 to 99 i'm like what how you know he's not a small frame guy there's plenty to like about stevie branch i i love the kid and when you watch him throw it's like how do you how do you not really like him so how do you how does he fall to being an undrafted free agent you know and i get the draft was short and all that but how does a guy who's upper 90s who throws enough strikes and has enough off-speed stuff to to be good. Like, how does that happen? And he just said, well, you know, I was, I didn't throw that hard. He's like, you kind of had arm pain and I just didn't throw hard. And I was like low nineties. It just wasn't, he's like, I was fine, but it wasn't great. And, um, I just laughed and I said, well, what, what, what changed? Like, what the hell happened? How do you throw 99 now? He said, well, I made a few mechanical tweaks and I got a little stronger and just tried to start throwing harder. And he's like, it just started to come out way better. <laughs> I just laughed. I'm like, that's the, like, that's incredible to think about, you know, a guy who he throws a ball harder than maybe, you know, there are, there are maybe what a hundred people on the planet who throw the ball harder than him. And he, he just kind of shrugs off and he's like, yeah, I just kind of tried harder. And I just cleaned up my delivery a little. And I just started to like lift a little bit and it just kind of fell into place, you know? And so when he told me the story, I couldn't help, but I just chuckled. I just sat, I was sitting in the bullpen and I just laughed. And I said, that's Stevie. That's incredible. That's like, that's the most anticlimactic story of a guy who might throw a hundred miles an hour, 103 miles an hour, you know, like ever. 
and, and if you just, if you knew the kid and you talked to him, he's just very, everything about him is very casual. And so it just kind of, he just kind of let it just roll off his tongue. Like it was, like it was no big deal as if, as if throwing 99, you know, every inning that you stand on the mound is not impressive. And, uh, you know, it just, um, it's a guy who I think has a very bright future and has done a hell of a job. And again, just like the other two that we've talked about, you know, just works very hard, cares deeply about his craft and wants to win. No, he is certainly a great story. And so is, uh, a pitcher who I think a lot of listeners haven't heard of, which is Vinny Timpanelli. Oh, I, I, be, I believe that's the name. Vinny Timpanelli is, well, he's obviously from the East Coast. And this guy, I mean, I don't even remember what school he went to. Uh, it's like small and very easy to forget. And he will laugh when he hears me say that. But he was a catcher. I mean, he was a catcher and had some interest or had an opportunity, I guess, to go pitch a little bit in a men's league and was like upper 80s, touch 90, got to 91, whatever, but was like not a pitcher in his life, really. And uh, I don't think he ever thought he would get a chance to play professionally as a pitcher. And I was actually, Vinny was on my call list. So Vinny was, I was, I think the first pitching coach you know, I think he probably talked to Conger and Kyle uh, after we signed him, but then like he got assigned to me, and I wasn't really sure what to expect from uh, from Vinny Timpanelli. And so when I called him, we were on the phone for a while, I don't know, hour and a half maybe, just trying to get a feel for the kid uh, before the season started. And, you know, he's just like, I said, well, where are we at? How do we get here? Fill me in, you know? So he tells me all this stuff, and it's a great story. And he's just like, yeah, I just want to throw everything as hard as I can. But he's like, my delivery sucks. And I'm like, well, okay, so where are we at? And at the time, he's like 93. He's like, eh, I kind of feel good. I kind of don't feel good. You know, like my arm's fine, but my body just hurts. And I feel like I'm not moving well. And he's calling me every two days. He's like, BG, I want to change this. And I, I don't like the way this looks. And I don't like the way that. And I said, hey, you need to like dial it back a little bit on trying to make all these adjustments. And I said, we need to figure out who you are first before we start doing all this. So we go back and forth and I'm in constant communication with Vinny and we report to spring training at this point, he's throwing pretty hard. And, uh, I kind of, I, I kind of was blowing him up and I was like, Hey, are you going to, are you going to like actually show up and throw a hundred or are you just going to, you know, not be good at baseball and sit out here with 93 and embarrass us? And he just kind of laughs. He's like, I'm going to hit a hundred. I'm going to like, I'm going to do it before spring training's over. And, uh, I said, all right, well, you know, I'd like to see you do it. Cause I said, it's, it's kind of boring watching you throw mid nineties. I said, that's slow. <laughs> and he said, all right, I'll do it. So he's pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And I think he got to 97, maybe 98 for a pitch or two, but you know, he's a guy now who sits, he's going to sit 95. I think if I, if I had to, I don't have his numbers in front of me, obviously, but He's probably 94, 95. He's going to touch 97. I think he's eventually going to average. He's probably going to average or sit 96 and a half, 97 miles an hour once we start to kind of get him dialed in. But the delivery has, it had a long way to go. And I think it's significantly better than it was. And I still think it has some room to improve. And I think Vinny would agree with that statement. But he is, uh, he's unique, you know, the delivery is different and he produces a ton of end zone swing and miss and he's really developing a change up and his slider's good. And so I think he's got a real arsenal. And if you talk about, you know, the, uh, 
one of the greatest compliments that I ever got as a player. I was a closer in rookie ball, actually, in Helena. When you, the team that you brought up, our radio guy described me as kind of a silent assassin. He's like, you don't say much out here, but he said, when you get on the mound, like it just, and I kind of laughed and I said, well, I appreciate that. I said, I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, I got to give Vinny kind of the same compliment. I don't know if I'll take it the same way, but when he gets on the mound, he's, a, he's an assassin. Like the game's over or at least the inning that he's throwing is over. And he's not a silent, Vinny and I like to talk a lot, but it's, uh, it's awesome. And that guy's going to be really, really good. And I think he's, I don't think he's on a lot of radars. Yeah, when it comes to, you know, talking pitching, Brian, you are definitely not a silent assassin. <laughs> no, I, I apologize. <laughs> no, no need to apologize. Uh, I do want to ask you about one more guy, another small school non-drafted pitcher. And part of the reason I want to bring him up is is philosophy. Braxton Roxby has a wipeout slider. But what what really interests me is that he threw it, I believe, like 70% of, of the time last year. I don't think many organizations would want a guy or allow a guy to go out and throw one pitch that many times, especially a breaking ball. Yeah. So it's think about think about that that statement and just flip slider usage with fastball usage and then just go back fifteen years. And that's just all that was happening. You know, so it's it's unusual in that we just said, Hey, like just go do what works. And it just it allowed him to just go throw this big sweepy slider, you know, an overwhelming majority of the time. And, you know, it worked for him. He struggled he struggled in double A, but he had a he had great success. This is his first year in Pro Bowl. And for him to do what he did in high A and then get a taste of double A. I the kid's prepared. He spent this whole offseason talking about how, you know, double A is not gonna conquer him and he will come back with a vengeance and he will do everything he needs to do. So I have no doubt that, that Braxton will be, you know, dominant and he'll, he could put up, he could put up Dayton like numbers in double A next year. And it's just, it's, it's absurd to me to think about how, oh yeah, well, we're just letting Braxton Roxby just throw the slider, you know, a million times a game and that that could be frowned upon when literally in 2000 until 2010 that's just what everybody did with a fastball it's like well we're gonna let one guy throw one pitch 70 percent of the time for like the whole life of baseball and then all of a sudden we just don't throw the fastball 70 percent of the time anymore and it's something else and all of a sudden there's like this you know this immediate like knee-jerk reaction of you know there's some doubt and there's some you know, uh, rejection of the idea just altogether. And it's like, eh, it's fine. It's okay. Like his slider is his best pitch. There's just no doubt about that. And why wouldn't you just take the most chances or why wouldn't you just, yeah, take the most chances with your best stuff? Like, we're not good. We don't want to take chances with lesser stuff. You know, it's literally bringing a knife to, to a gunfight. If you're just like, yeah, I just, I'll take my second or third best pitch and I'll throw it the same amount as my best pitch. It just doesn't make any sense. And I think, I think for the most part, Baseball has finally grasped that across the board. I, you know, we still see a, a few, you know, orgs or teams or universities or whatever across the country who like still hang on to establish the fastball, establish the fastball. And then, you know, you can waste a pitch and then you can whatever, do whatever you got to do to finish the at bat at that point. But I, I think for the most part, those, those ideas that those days are kind of behind us and it's, it's mix it up 
keep it an even mix, you know, from count to count, situation to situation, just don't get predictable. And so if you can just throw every pitch an equal amount of times, or if you can identify your best pitch and throw that one slightly more, then you put yourself in a pretty good situation. And I think Roxby, truthfully, you know, he's got some interesting fastball metrics and he's not a guy, he doesn't throw slow, you know, he's, he's been up to the mid nineties. And so I think he has a pretty good opportunity here to kind of regroup after his stint in double A and take this off season and be prepared to come back with, you know, a legitimate weapon in the fastball. And so before the season was over, we had an in-depth conversation about fastball shape and intent and what we could kind of do with that and how to play off the slider and maybe find, you know, a bridge pitch in between there, which would be like tinkering with a grip and deciding, are we going to go arm side or glove side? which will affect the grip. So like, are we going to try and sink it? Or are we going to try and ride it? Are we going to try and go extension side or arm side? And those would be different pitches with different grips. And it would give him more confidence because he feels like he's got a wider arsenal and he's more able to tackle or, or at least get out a wider range of hitters and have options in situations with, you know, men in scoring position, whatever it may be. So like we had a really, really good conversation and, and, and Roxby's a thinker. He's a very cerebral kind of guy. He like almost to the point where he will overanalyze things. And so he wore me out at the end of the season because he was, he was itching, you know, he struggled in double A and he comes in, he's like, Hey, I, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. And he won the ball every night. And he wanted to go out and kind of right the wrongs and get back on track. And I think the kid's got, he's got some real tools. He's got some weapons and he's got a real desire to, you know, figure it out for himself. And so I'm excited to watch him, him progress. You know, he's a little bit old for level, I think for like his class. And so like he, he seems to have this like sense of urgency. You know, he's like, I, I gotta go. I gotta go. Like he wants to be really good overnight and get his chance and, and do all that. And so you sometimes you kind of got to slow him down and just be like, hey, it's like, it's good. It'll happen when it happens, but like, just take a day and go relax. And he's, he was great though. And I think he's going to be really good and he's got an opportunity to be exceptional. No, everything in his time, Brian. And I think that we are pretty much over time here. So, you know, spring training is coming very soon. And uh, with that in mind, I'd like to thank you again for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. I appreciate you having me. I apologize for taking up all of our time. I could do this for 10 more hours, man. I really do enjoy it, but thanks for having me. No, it's, it is easy to talk pitching. You know, thank you, everybody, for listening to Fangraphs Audio. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Brian Garman for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider telling a friend or two about it. It helps us out. And after you check out that Fangraphs.com shop, scoot on over and sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is the best way to keep up on everything we have going on at the site, free to your inbox every weekday. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next week.